This is episode 282 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show and contribute directly to programming, as well as get access to a library of additional episodes when you sign up to be a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to go even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare and try out some of the history you learn about here on the show, then you should consider Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership here at That Shakespeare Life, where we offer hands-on digital history activity kits that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hello, I'm Sir Stanley Wells. I'm Honorary President of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. I suppose you might fit... 12 people, provided they're not really tall people. You might fit 12 in the bed, lying top to tail. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, Act 3, Sir Toby Belch uses the Great Bed of Ware in England as a measuring stick for something that is impossibly large. The Great Bed of Ware is an actual bed, as it was in Shakespeare's lifetime, and it was made for the travelers to use when staying at an inn. The bed itself, as Sir Toby suggests, is impossibly large with a sleeping capacity of up to nine or even more people, depending on how you arrange them in the bed. Here today to tell us about the history and importance of the Great Bed of Ware is our guest and curator of furniture and woodwork from 1300 to 1700 at the Victoria and Albert Museum, where the Great Bed of Ware is part of their collections. Please welcome Nick Humphrey. Nick Humphrey is the curator for the furniture and woodwork from 1300 to 1700 at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Before joining the V&A in 1994, he worked for the National Trust and at Burley House, Lincolnshire. He has published various articles and papers in relation to his contributions at the V&A's galleries. He serves as bursary secretary for the Regional Furniture Society and as a member of the Furniture History Society Editorial Committee. Find out more about Nick and his work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Nick. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, Cassidy. It's a pleasure to be here. Who built the Great Bed of Ware and why? Why did somebody think we needed an enormous bed in the world? Good question. Well, despite the bed's fame and popularity, actually, we don't know for sure who made it or why. Actually, we almost never who made or even designed the most English furniture in this period. However, it's fair to say the bed must have been made around 1590. That's based on the overall design compared to other woodwork that is firmly dated. Beds often have dates on them, which helps. In terms of size, the bed 
is very exceptional, but in other ways, it's relatively conventional. What we do know is that the bed has always been associated with the town of Ware in Hertfordshire, that's W-A-R-E, which would have been about a day's journey north from London, going by horse or coach. And that suggests that the bed's most likely to have been produced in the workshop of a London joiner. Would have needed a substantial workshop because a commission like this would have required very competent expertise in design, as well as the capacity to subcontract and coordinate the skills and products of the various workers involved. That's to say, wood turners, wood carvers, you'd have needed specialist inlayers, and then painters and varnishers, as we're, I imagine, going to touch on later in the conversation. The workshop would also have had to arrange delivery by cart of the bed in sections up to where for reassembly and setting up wherever it was going to go. Of course, beds had to be relatively demountable by design because they're always too big to fit through doorways. And that's one of the reasons why you find iron bed bolts that secure a bed frame together at quite an early date. And then there's all the bed hangings, the soft furnishings that would have been needed. And it's fair to say those would have been ordered by the client themselves working with suppliers such as linen or woolen drapers, mercers, upholders, seamstresses and so on. So there's quite a range of people involved in a commission like this. Now, some listeners might have come across a legend that the bed was made long before Shakespeare's day, actually in the 15th century by a carpenter called Jonas Fosbrook. But I'm sorry to have to disappoint you. That's a story created in 1839. In fact, completely concocted for a Christmas pantomime called Harlequin and the Merry Devil of Edmonton, or the Great Bed of Ware, which was performed at the Theatre Royal Garden. And the story there was that the bed had been made and presented to the royal family by this joiner, Jonas Fosbrook, And that after his death, his spirit came back to torment commoners daring to sleep in a royal bed by pinching, nipping and scratching at them. And moreover, that only a true lover could endure a night of this kind of pinching in a haunted bed. Unfortunately, that tale from the pantomime was repeated as factual and misled the authors of numerous 19th century publications who should have known better, but never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Mind you, the Fosbrook tale would have been a stroke of marketing genius for the bed, encouraging those with delusions of nobility to take the test of sleeping in the bed and usefully explaining away the discomfort of bed bugs. So there you are. Do we know who made the bed? No. So you mentioned that it is of exceptional size. What are the dimensions of the bed and how many people could sleep in it at one time? Well, the bed is, depending on how you calculate it, at least twice the size of any other surviving great bed of the period. It's nearly nine foot high, almost 11 foot wide and 11 foot deep. However, in terms of how many could sleep in it, we're really thinking about the mattress platform which is about nine foot long, eight and a half in eight and a half foot wide, which I've just done the calculations, is nearly two and a half times the area of a king size bed. Now, it's a very good question. How many could fit in the bed? I suppose you might fit 12 people, provided they're not 
really tall people. You might fit 12 in the bed, lying top to tail. I mean, that would be hilariously uncomfortable for sleeping in. You're not actually, Cassidy, the first one to ask the question, how many slept in the bed? Over the centuries, its size is the thing that gets mentioned the most about it. And there's a competitive kind of Guinness Book of Records feel about the stories, how in 1596, four couples lay side by side. In 1700, six citizens and their wives came from London in a frolic to sport themselves. In 1728, 12 butchers and their wives. Why butchers? I don't know. By 1732, it was supposedly big enough for 20 couple. And by 1765, the story is to claim that 26 butchers and their wives lay one night for a bet in the year 1689. I keep meaning to mark out the size of the bed in one of the halls of the museum and get a class or two of school children in, see how many we can pack in and and go for that Guinness Book of Records award. But I uh, haven't got around to it yet. So how many would you need to beat the Guinness Book of Records? <laughs> I have no idea. I haven't, <laughs> haven't, haven't checked the specification there. I'm sure, sure someone's got a copy to hand and can let us know. If you achieve this, you must write us back and let us know about it. Uh, you'll be the first one. Where was the Great Bed of Ware originally located? I mean, it was it was commissioned by somebody to start with. What, where did they put it once they had it made? Well, the first mention of the bed, uh, which is 1596, has it at an inn in the town of Ware in Hertfordshire. And it's that town name, Ware, that gives us the, the title, the Great Bed of Ware. Where is a day's travel from London on the main north road from London? So it's a town where you'd have lots of travellers passing through and, and accordingly lots of inns to accommodate them. So back in 1596, a German princely tourist, Prince Ludwig of Anhalt-Köthen, slept in what I think must have been the bed. And years later, he recorded his visit in verse, German verse, of course, which I'm not going to repeat for you but it's been usefully translated at where was a bed of dimensions so wide four couples might cosily lie side by side and thus without touching each other abide we have a bit more detail 1610 the bed was in the white heart inn now for a long time it was assumed that such a grand bed as this must actually have come from a great country house Somewhere in the vicinity, perhaps Sir Henry Henry Fanshawe's uh, house, Ware Park. The assumption was made because nobody assumed it would have been made originally for an inn. And that assumption was made despite the lack of three bits of fairly important corroborating evidence. No family heraldry on the bed, which you'd have expected, a coat of arms, for example. There's no reference to it in any of the Fanshawe papers. And there was no convenient explanation of why it would have been moved to an inn so soon after its creation. Now, as you will be gathering, we believe it was actually made as an outside curiosity to attract customers to an inn. Um, that might have been suggested by a contemporary. Tudor practice, whereby in English royal palaces, distinguished foreign 
visitors were customarily shown the beds in which kings and queens had slept and sometimes died. So that might have given someone this rather clever idea. But however that idea originated, it was a brilliant bit of marketing that clearly spread very quickly by word of mouth. As there might be opportunity to tell, those stories clearly were enhanced by the kind of racy accounts of what might have happened in the bed. So there were people who would travel to the White Hart specifically to see the Great Bed of Ware during the 17th century. That's quite possible, given that it's a, a day's travel north of London. I suppose most of those sleeping in the bed are likely to have been travellers who'd be passing through Ware because it's the main route north and there's there'd be a lot of travel. And the, the rumours of this great bed encouraged them to stay in the White Hart as opposed to one of the other competitor inns. Today, when we look at images of the bed, it's this very dark brown colour. But would the bed have been painted dark brown when it was originally installed at the White Hart Inn? Or was it even painted? What would it have looked like um, in terms of its colour? So when you say the bed is is quite dark brown, of course, we're, we're talking about the wooden frame of the bed, the bedstock, whereas to a Tudor viewer, what really counted were the textiles covering it, and these were much more valuable than the woodwork. And those hangings, the curtains and so on, they would have been very brightly coloured. So the overall effect certainly wouldn't be a dark brown effect. Anyway, coming back to the wooden frame, which is what we put in front of us in the museum, yeah, it would have looked quite when new. For one thing, freshly worked oak is a, a pale honey colour usually. And in the 16th century, that was usually finished with a beeswax polish or a linseed-based oil varnish, which would have added some luster to the surface. Over time, wood and varnish both tend to darken with oxidization, with dirt and so on. Now, Additionally, what on the bedstock as it survives today, there are numerous traces of paint in bright colours, red, pink, green, yellow, orange, white, as well as brown and black, and some gilding. So there's very persuasive evidence that the oak was partially picked out in bright colours. And that's not uncommon for 16th century furniture by any means. Then there's the headboard where inlaid patterns would have been much more visible than they are today with a strong contrast between the black and the white areas. So overall, I think you'd have had an almost overwhelming effect of richness and drama, particularly in a fairly uh, low lit room or, or one lit by candlelight, which, of course, is is when many users of the bed would have been seeing it. And then if you imagine a candlelight and the curtains closed to create a kind of room within a room, there's the boldly carved Renaissance ornament, like columns, arches, and the rich figurative details like the naked satyrs, the lions with rings in their mouths, these male and female sentinels standing either side of the bedhead. They're, they're there to remind you of your virtue and family duty. So the overall effect would have been very dramatic and, and yes, quite colourful. 
I didn't realize how intricate the carvings were on all parts of this bed that I can imagine the details alone would have been impressive. But then to follow that up with lots of color, I can picture in my mind exactly the sort of overwhelming, quite an imposing figure that the the bed would have made when you first saw it. Yeah. On the VNA website, which is the source of information for all our collections, there's lo- lots and lots of uh, photographs and details of all that carving um, across the bed and, and many other details too. So lots to explore there. Now you mentioned, we will link to all of those details in the show notes so you can go and check that out and definitely go look at the pictures because it is impressive. But I wonder about the bedding. You mentioned that you would have had to have them custom made and I that's kind of a moot point in the Tudor period since all of them would have been custom made. But I'm thinking about what kind of bedding was used in terms of material and was the process for keeping it clean and washing it different from what might have been standard because of its size? Yeah, that's a big subject. And bedding was absolutely crucial to the overall effect of the bed and indeed represented the greatest financial investment of the whole ensemble. You have to remember that in late 16th and early 17th century England, bedrooms were less private spaces than they are today. Apart from sleeping, plenty of other activities went on there, often with guests present. So a great bed was a kind of a theatre for display within the home, expensively dressed with luxury textiles, according to the status of the bed. Now, the original bedding for the bed of wear is long, long gone. What you see, if you're able to visit the V&A today, are historically accurate replicas based on inventories of the period from middling quality houses in southern England. And we've had those made to show how smart beds were furnished in southern England in around 1600. And by stepping to one side of the bed where the bedding has been folded back layer by layer, you can see how the bed's made up. So from the bottom, moving upwards, you can see hemp cords that were threaded through holes in the bed rails, strung across. That's where the expression uh, sleep tight comes from, because of those those cords, which are really supporting all the bedding, have to be uh, tensioned unless you want everything to sag down. Over the hemp cords, you had woven rush matting. And on top of that, the mattresses or or beds as they would have been known at the time they they were stacked up several for a prestigious bed height height matters on a like this and each mattress would be progressively softer as you went up so you might have wool flock underneath uh, or maybe straw and then feathers and down on on top over the mattresses bleached white linen sheets and pillowcases In an ideal world, these would be pleasantly smooth and fresh, of course, and clean. It's worth remembering that some travellers even carried their own linen with them so that they could reduce the chance of bed bugs, which were a notorious hazard of Tudor inns. On top of the sheets, you'd have wanted a, a bolster in order to support you as you slept propped up with your head raised, a position that was believed to help your digestion support restful sleep so not the completely prone position that we would tend to adopt today then to keep warm you're going to need woolen blankets quite a a challenge for the bed of wear given its size in fact you'd have had two big blankets seamed together and then over the top of that a quilt 
maybe silk covered, quite luxurious in 1600. Uh, the one we had made up is made with shot sarsnet. That's the name of the fabric, a shimmering combination in pink and green, a, a really beautiful two-tone effect. And then you'd have wanted a coverlet on the top. And we've we've done one in with a mix of linen and some gold thread, a fabric probably known at the time as Dornix, one of the terms coming from the Low Countries, which were where so many of the textiles were developed in this early modern period. And then there's the question of the hangings for the bed, the curtains and the valances, upper and lower valances, that uh, not only provide privacy, but also help to keep the warmth in. And the bedding that we've made up is a very bold uh, red and yellow colour scheme, which was the most popular combination in southern England at that time. Further north, red and green, as I recollect, tend to be a more popular combination. And then the last bit of detailing were with all this, all these layers piled up, you didn't want them to slip off in the middle of the night. So oak bed staves, which were a bit like a long baseball bat, were thrust kind of vertically along the edge of the mattresses, and they prevented covers slipping off. And those staves are also quite useful for flattening out lumps in the mattresses. Now, you asked about washing and cleaning. That's that's another big topic in its own right, a really fascinating one. And again, the size of the bed meant that this been a huge challenge and of course there would have been quite a turnover no pun intended given the number of guests staying in the bed what we can be sure about is that the sheets were not laundered after every set of guests as you might hope in a modern hotel well we'd all hope in a modern hotel now normally the coverlet the quilt the hangings would have been aired rather than washed the mattresses which given that they're full of wool and feathers would of course been quite attractive to insects and pests of other kinds. So periodically they need to have been emptied and the stuffing either washed or replaced. But in terms of laundry, we're thinking really about the linen sheets and pillowcases. And uh, there's a great book by Pamela Sambrook, the country house servant, who goes into the subject of laundry in the British country house. And she explains that there's a tradition that the stock of linen in a large household of the 17th century was laundered quarterly, that four times a year. But in fact, the evidence she found suggests that that may have been more frequent, particularly in if the household had the financial resources to, to do something more frequent. So maybe a monthly clean supplemented by a big annual wash over a period of weeks, all the household linen that took place in August and September, when it would be the weather would would help dry the material quicker. So not not a regular weekly uh, laundry. And then once we get into the the detail of of how the linen was cleaned, in brief, I can tell you it was laborious. Laundering linen typically involved steeping the sheets in a vegetable-based lye. Now, lye would have been made by steeping wood ash in water to extract the potassium salts, producing effectively an alkali cleanser. To your lye water, you would have added stale urine, which would have been collected in the household. 
very useful. Or maybe water in which bird dung from your chickens or your pigeons had also been steeped. So you steep the linen in that distinctively unpleasant alkali-based mixture. Then, of course, you'd want to rinse it. There apparently the steeping produced something of a stale smell. So you might I well can have only wanted, imagine, yes. <laughs> you might have wanted herbal infusion after the rinsing. And then there's the finishing, which involved a process called bluing, uh, which, as you might expect, involves adding a blue tint in the 17th century. That probably came from indigo or maybe woad twigs. Bluing it to give a, a blueness as opposed to the, the yellowness that you might otherwise get, and also some bleaching to offset the effects of the soda and the urine. And bleaching was accomplished by spreading out the linen on long grass in the sun and the wind, a process done by whitesters. Uh, you did it where the animals weren't going to wander, of course, and apparently that bleaching was best done in frosty air in wintertime. If it wasn't dry by that point, the linen had to be dry and spread out on the grass or on bushes or maybe over clothes lines of hemp or wire. So not a question of throwing it in the washing machine and, and the tumble dryer, I'm afraid. And it sounds really disgusting, but I have to think the, the urine and the bird droppings has a scientific backing, given the amount of ammonia that are in those, which, of course, ammonia is a known household cleaner today. So it wasn't it wasn't outside of reasonable decisions of how to clean it. And we could only think that it worked since it was a standard practice for so long. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, soap, soap balls are coming in, but. Sam Brook explains that they would have been a more costly approach and more likely to have been used, I think, for your wearing apparel for, for clothes and maybe your tableware. So there's lots of other linen going through the wash. And in some ways, the, the big sheets would receive a slightly less level of attention because it's the it's your wearing linen that that you really want to take um, efforts to to keep looking at its best. Shakespeare mentions the Great Bed of Ware in his play Twelfth Night, and his contemporary Ben Jonson mentions the Great Bed of Ware in his play Epicene, which suggests that the bed had an established pop culture reputation in the 16th and 17th century. I know you mentioned that it was a traveler's curiosity, but I wonder if the bed held a place in, you know, icon culture. Was it something that people knew about, like um, like the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben or something where we know of this thing and people talk about it? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it's the fact that it's so famous that makes the bed of wear exceptional. Specific pieces of furniture hardly ever get talked about in their own right. Exceptions are things like the coronation chair or King Arthur's round table. But it's it's quite hard to come up with a list of other specifically famous pieces of furniture as opposed to the desk owned by a famous person, Charles Dickens' desk, for example. But but the but it's only famous because Charles Dickens wrote at it. So to have a piece of furniture that's famous in its own right is very, very unusual. And yet here in the Bed of Ware, we have something that was famous from the very beginning and clearly so widely known that audiences attending the London theatre knew all about it. They they didn't have to have it spelled out. Now from what's been written about the bed, which is 
much. Two themes stand out. One of them, of course, is how huge the bed is. And the other, not surprisingly, is sex. The bed always had a bawdy reputation. And it's probably not surprising at an inn full of strangers with an unpredictable mix of guests sleeping in the bed every night, some of them out on a spree. As we heard from those quotes, all those butchers and their wives coming out for a lark. And of course, the bigger the bed, the more space there is for companions and mischief, all the more likely that touching is going to start either willing or unwilling. And that might just lead to more exciting things. Or, to put it bluntly, as various playwrights did, communal love parties would be a nice way of putting it. And those early Jacobean dramatic references all all play up on that saucy reputation from its earliest days. But the, the saucy aspect to it wasn't the only line that was well known. One of my favourite literary references comes not from comic drama, but from a printed ballad, the kind of cheap news sheet in its day, and one that was published after the Great Fire of London in 1666, which describes rows of the displaced, old people and children sleeping in the fields outside the city. So many of them that, to quote, the miscellany made in every square, the counterfeit of the great bed of wear. And I find it very touching that in this sort of national emergency, the proverbial and rather disreputable kiss me quick bed of wear was reimagined as a kind of refugee camp. Over the years, following Shakespeare's day, strange and inventive traditions become associated with the bed. By at least 1700, if not earlier, enterprising landlords were charging curious visitors who didn't want to spend the whole night in the bed, to stand under a pair of antlers fixed to the foot of the bed and swear a comic oath to avoid cuckolding, being betrayed by your spouse. And naturally, any landlord worth their salt would be serving overpriced drinks to go along with that kind of ceremony. One landlord took the practical joke further and served his guests a bedtime drink laced with laxative. Mmm, nice. You could, of course, opt for something a bit cheaper, quicker and more hygienic, like Samuel Kerwin in 1765, who describes for us how he was allowed to lie down on it for sixpence and get a mug of beer for another six. And having having done that, he'd had his experience. That was enough for him. And off he went. He wasn't going to stick around and get bitten by bedbugs. Coming back to that question of the iconic status, I, I think the, the full iconic aspect took longer to develop than the Jacobean period, but evolved over the four centuries into something really rich and complex, a role, a reputation that's wide enough to accommodate not only Shakespeare, but also toilet humour, one of the mainstays of English culture, patriotism, sexual innuendo, antiquarians, tipsy tourists, immigrants coming into London with skills that English customers were happy to pay for while complaining about the presence of immigrants taking over our cities and towns. So there's a slight risk that in the elegant galleries of the V&A today that the bed comes across as a bit better behaved than it, than it really was. 
But if you look closely, you can see how the bed frame has been covered in graffiti scratched into the wood with a pen knife or red spots of sealing wax left by those who've left the night in it and wanted to commemorate their visit. The earliest date that we found scratched in is 1653. So that, that, the extent of that graffiti helps us understand, I think, that the bed was seen from a very early date as something that really belonged to everyone and anyone. It's vandalism in one sense, and it might have been why the V&A turned down the opportunity to buy the bed in the 19th century, 1865, when my predecessors sniffily dismissed it as, quote, a coarse and mutilated specimen. But then in another sense, all that, that graffiti is a kind of uh, veneration shown by people for what you might see as a national relic in Reformation England. It's really interesting to think about carving, I think, the phrase that we have here, I don't, I don't know if this translates to the UK, but people will carve their name and say, you know, Cassidy was here, and they'll carve that into the backs of otherwise public spaces to try and leave their mark on it. And I just find it fascinating that that tradition or human activity of carving, you know, I, I want to leave a mark that says I was here, extends all the way back to uh, definably the 17th century. That's a really interesting fact that the Great Bed of Ware teaches us about what people were like so many years ago. And you mentioned that the VNA turned down the opportunity to buy the bed earlier. And I wonder if you could tell us what the story of the Great Bed of Ware is over the years, it, briefly, but between how did it go from being this mainstay fixture in an inn to now being housed at the VNA? Oh, well, it's a great story and can be read in detail. Now, over time, Within the town of Ware, the bed actually did a bit of fair, a fair bit of travelling in its own right, because it was clearly being bought and sold on a fairly regular basis over the period of 250 years. So from the White Hart in that 1610, it's then recorded at the George Inn in 1700. 1728, uh, it's at the Crown. By 1765, it's in the Saracen's Head. And those are only the references we know about. And of course, it's getting refreshes of of bed hangings that would have been um, replaced periodically, brought up to date to look more fashionable. Then after nearly 300 years as a visitor attraction in which you could spend the night and carve your initials into if you wanted, comes 1870 when it was sold to the Rye House Hotel, which is it's not far from where it's in a town called Hodston. And Hodston was in its own right, a tourist destination. It had 50 acres of gardens and a fairground. So we're, we're right in the middle of the Victorian period now. And in those decades before the First World War, thousands of day trippers were traveling out of London visiting at summer weekends by rail, return fare, one shilling and sixpence, or by Sharabank, one of these uh, wonderful, huge uh, motorised vehicles. And the bed formed part of a display, a medley of curios in an outhouse at the Rye House Hotel. All kinds of weird and wonderful things, not not like the V&A at all. There was 
the preserved body of what was described as a Siamese pig, a freak of nature. So some kind of conjoined fetus, I guess. And a portion of the first Atlantic cable laid by the Great Eastern in 1865. So a medley of, of curiosities, of which the bed was by far the largest. That was there for 60 years. And that takes us through to 1930, when the brewery that owned the fairground decided to sell up and offered the bed to the museum. The bed had featured in books of furniture history. Furniture history is a, a young discipline, but you know, as early as the 1830s, people are writing about the history of furniture. And the bed of wear is, a, is a, an early and well-known piece. So the brewery offered it to the museum and negotiations over the, the price were developing at a, a gentlemanly pace, let's say, when the brewery announced, surprise, surprise, that actually it was now going to have to accept a very high offer from a London dealer. In fact, four times the annual furniture department budget for acquisitions. And it would have to accept this high offer unless the museum was willing to match the price. And, and you've got a couple of weeks to decide, chaps. So the museum curators had been outmaneuvered and they were because this was now public public knowledge or risk becoming public knowledge. And the museum either had to find the money or risk being on the receiving end of a scandal that they'd allowed this national treasure to be sold abroad, probably to a wealthy American collector, William Randolph Hearst, uh, whose spending power was pretty much unmatched at the time. And so to cut a long story short, the museum raised the money. And when it arrived in 1931, it was not only the museum's largest piece of furniture, but also the most expensive acquisition for just over £4,000. That's uh, approximately a quarter of a million pounds today. And with an eye on public opinion, the museum presented the acquisition as a, as a great national triumph. So today, the bed is is on display, of course. It's one of the most popular pieces in the museum. It's on show in our British galleries, which tell the story of design in Britain from 1500 to 1900. A really rich context, because there you can see it alongside all kinds of other artefacts from the same period, whether that's elite objects of the, the most sophisticated kind, a Venetian virginal made for Queen Elizabeth, for example, or the amazing miniatures by Nicholas Hilliard. But you also see it beside everyday items from uh, Tudor England, like a disposable earthenware money. And here the bed is not only telling its own story, but it's it's part of the broader story of how design in Britain evolved over 400 years. There are obsessions with classical ornament and the expansion of product types and so on and so forth. So a long and complicated story. Well, I know that you've mentioned a couple of places that we can go, including the VNA website, which is what I would recommend as the starting point for to learn more about the Great Bed of Ware. But I wonder if you could recommend some books that we might could check out or other resources that would help us dive more into not only the Great Bed of Ware, but maybe if we're new to the idea of furniture history and exploring that, where should we start to dive further into this topic? Well, if it's the bed itself and the bed's history since Shakespeare's day, then I'm going to give you a quick plug for my chapter about the bed in the V&A publication 
called The Lives of the Objects, which takes 10 of our greatest, most celebrated treasures and explores them in, in great depth. And, and you will also, along with the Bedouin, you'll find treasures like the Raphael cartoons, uh, Shakespeare's first folio, or a Schiaparelli evening dress, for example. Now, for those interested in British furniture of the period, the best introductory survey remains, I think, uh, Victor Chinnery's big book titled Oak Furniture, The British Tradition, A History of Early Furniture in the British Isles and New England. First written in 1979, but revised in 2016. And it's very broad ranging. It's well illustrated. He covers lots of different aspects, market, design, technique. There's lots there to get your teeth into. It's a great reference book. If if the new edition, which is the best illustrated one, is too expensive, you can find earlier editions relatively cheaply on online secondhand. The other book I would I would recommend is a 2017 publication by Tara Hamling and Catherine Richardson entitled A Day in Early Modern England, Material Culture and Domestic Life, 1500 to 1700. This is an academic book, but it's written very accessibly with a general audience in mind, and it explores domestic spaces of the kind that were occupied by ordinary people in our period and steers clear of some of the pitfalls of costume drama versions of 17th century life, really encouraging a reader to approach everyday life as it was lived in its fragility and frugality, its physicality, its piety, its sociability. It's, it's, that's a, a, another really good reference book that I recommend. We will place links to these resources as well as the others Nick mentions today. So stay tuned for the URL for the show notes and you'll find a direct link to all of these. Now, Nick, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, that's a nice question. Well, I'd like to take Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, please can it be a good uh, edition uh, with lots of footnotes now the reason for that choice is that a lifetime ago when i was at school i studied book 1 of paradise lost and with the help of a of a great teacher i learned to love milton's extraordinary style and by inclination being a bit romantic a bit religious and a bit republican i chose christ college at cambridge where milton had studied and went on to read English there. And in a roundabout way, I, I think that also helped set me on a career centred on arts of the early modern period, which is, is what I do today. It's true, Milton is a bonding poet, and, and his verse needs time to digest. Uh, you don't want these distractions to prevent the music of his writing filling the space. So you've got to read it aloud. I think a deserted island would probably be a good, a good place for that. That's the one I'd like, please, Cassidy. I think that that is an excellent choice for your deserted island. And what a way to make the deserted island work for you so that you can use it as an option to dive deeper into some of the best literature ever written. So I think that's a great idea. Well, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, well, there's always so much going on in the museum. And for uh, 17th century, we're having a really interesting run at the moment on 
Spanish colonial lacquer produced in what is modern day Colombia. But what's what's really occupying me just this week is our latest acquisition, which is a really extraordinary piece of Scottish furniture made in 1613. So that's that, of course, is the year Shakespeare's Globe Theatre burned down. And if I if I say it's a, a great piece of furniture from from a Scottish courtly context, you you have to think of Macbeth. This was a, this is a dresser made in 1613 for John Douglas, fifth laird of Tilquilly, and his wife Maria Seaton for Tilquilly Castle. And it's a kind of it's a towering sideboard with a medieval style canopy, an absolutely extraordinary thing. And in a few weeks' time, it will go on display in V&A Dundee. But you can already see photographs and find information about the Tilquilly dresser on our website. That sounds fascinating. How exciting to see a piece of furniture that did exist during Shakespeare's lifetime. That's very fun. We will go and check out the V&A website to find out more about this. Nick Humphrey, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of the Great Bed of Ware. It's been fun looking at how it was made and what role it played in the cultural history of Shakespeare's lifetime so that we can understand better what the audience would have understood when Shakespeare includes the Great Bed of Ware in his play. Thank you for sharing this history with us. Thanks, Cassidy. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to see visuals about the Great Bed of Ware, along with other artifacts and information that Nick talks about from the VNA, I've picked several of them and packed that into the show notes for today's episode. There's also more information on the White Hart Inn, where the Great Bed of Ware was originally housed. There's an illustrated map of where this inn was located alongside other inns mentioned in Shakespeare's plays that you can download from the show notes as well. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 282. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 282. If you'd like to really dive into the history of William Shakespeare and try out some of the things that existed in his life for yourself, like making your own Tudor's soap balls from the 16th century, or playing a card game like Naughty, which shows up in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm here at That Shakespeare Life, where we give our members access to a library of hands-on history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Each kit comes with a video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions to let you complete the activity at home or in your classroom. The kits coordinate with Shakespeare's plays and with specific episodes of our show. Members also get access to our resource library full of maps, diagrams, and so much more. If you are a Shakespeare educator or you just love diving into the 17th century and really getting to get your hands on some of the history from this time period, then you will love joining us inside Experience Shakespeare, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member member. We are so grateful to listeners just like you who support our show as patrons. Patrons make it possible for us to connect with the world's leading experts on Shakespeare history and bring you the very best in history information here each week. To say thank you for being the power behind the work we do here, patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms, along with studio-level access to the making of our show, where patrons can suggest topic ideas and submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history with us each week and want to play a 
direct role in supporting the work we do here, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.